Hi there, Bill. Happy New Year. Welcome to 2023. Hey. How are you doing? I'm happy New Year to you as well, Robin. Thank you. Thank you. So one of my New Year's resolutions was to lose a little bit of weight. And as you can see, I'm a disembodied head floating through space today. As you know, if you want to succeed, you have to get ahead in life. So here I am. That's right. Do you have any New Year's resolutions yourself? You know, my New Year's resolution is to do what I think everybody should do, and that's to sharpen your own sauce. Spend some time to make yourself a little bit better. Sounds good. Well, if you have some legacy appliances laying around, some access points, some firewalls you no longer need, you can sharpen those first. You know, use those as your saw, after all. So, right. on the topic of legacy vendors, let's talk about Netgear. So, I hear there have been a few problems with Netgear routers, and things have gone a little bit awry. What can you tell us about this? Well, Robin, as you know, Netgear is a huge purveyor of networking equipment, especially for the end user. And, you know, today as we talk, I want to spend a little bit of time turning the tables on, on our conversation because a lot of what we deal with in the enterprise from a security perspective can be driven from the things we see at home. In this case, Netgear has issued a warning to their users. It's been a broadcast type warning, letting them know that they need to update all of their edge devices, all of their Wi-Fi routers, because a 7.4 CVSS risk has been discovered that allows threat actors to get around the authorization. So as, uh, as folks may or may not know, and I think most of them don't know, in order to log into one of those edge routers, you got to type in a username and a password. But now we have a situation where threat actors are able to get in without using a username and password. It's a pretty ugly one, Robin. Does this impact just business to business or business to customer as well? Well, it, it really affects things across the board. It, it, it can even be from the end user's perspective sitting in their home. And it's a little bit, um, I guess I got a little bit of amusement out of it because Netgear, when they issued this broad warning, indicated that if you don't patch it, if, uh, if, if you delay on it, Netgear cannot be held responsible for the consequences. So uh, the warning was duly issued. And again, whether business to business or business to personal or just what somebody deals with in their home and trying to connect to the internet, they're at risk. This sounds scary. Now, imagine if you're running a hotel chain and you have thousands of Netgear access points deployed everywhere. Is Netgear going to fund your effort and your time to upgrade and patch all of these resources? Probably not. Well, of course not. Of course not. So what happens? I, I am an IT security professional. I'm a practitioner and I just received this scary email saying you're vulnerable your entire network is exposed to the internet what do i do you know the way this one works is if if you're and i'm sure you're familiar with it robin it, it's a buffer overflow that happens pre-authorization so mm -hmm. a threat actor can come in and they can overflow the the, the buffer uh, in memory and basically get around having to log Again, So that means the need to patch. If you're an IT individual, that means having to patch every single one of those devices. And mm. really the danger here is that if that's not performed, 
that would give the threat actor the ability to gain control of the device that'll let them install things like uh, like botnets. In fact, when the warning came out and, and several publications have, have echoed the warning, uh, they were worried about those devices being used for, uh, for Mirai, which we've talked about multiple times in our conversations. So botnets can be installed. You can even redirect internet bound traffic. Now that's a big one. You think about, you gave the example of a hotel chain, people logging on to these, these Netgear routers to, to try to get out to the internet and conduct their business. Now all of the business traffic can potentially be compromised, let alone the, the opportunity for identity theft. So this is one that is pretty urgent. The, the risk level again, as we said, is 7.4. What really ramps up the vulnerability is the fact that Netgear is just so widespread. It's used mm -hmm. in so many places. Yeah, some people think that buying from very big vendors gives them security, but in fact, you just have a much wider attack surface. Now, when I heard this notification come through in the media, the first thing I did was, of course, go to Shodan and just have a quick scan to see how many publicly accessible Wi-Fi access points there were with this vulnerability. And there were thousands, hundreds of thousands. Now, of course, me being ethical, I didn't try to exploit, didn't go any further. But open source intelligence associated with this level of media attention can put people in very hot water very quickly. And trying to find the time and the energy and the effort to ensure your entire environment is secured, that is a losing battle. Sure. So how could Cato help customers protect against this sort of vulnerability? Well, first of all, Robin, I love that you mentioned Shodan. For those who aren't aware, Shodan is a free tool that you can simply do a, a search for it. And you have the ability to sign up for a free account at Shodan. And that gives you the ability to essentially go out and look at exposed uh, IoT devices. And that's really sort of what we're talking about here. This is very much a, um, an IoT concern. And that's where we're turning the tables a little bit on the conversation from a more user-focused edge device to typical IoT devices. And one of the most one of the things we struggle with the most with IoT devices is patching, whether it's availability of patches, whether it's taking those things offline. And in the case of a lot of Netgear routers, the truth is an awful lot of the users, in fact, estimates were 90 to 95 percent, won't even do it because they don't know how. The way that we can help mitigate this, now this is not to say that we eliminate the need to patch, you still need to do that. Mm -hmm. But the way that we can help mitigate this is with a strong SASE solution. It's going to provide that layer of protection until the time that you have the ability to do that patch. Again, it doesn't eliminate the need for the patching, but a strong SASE or SSE solution is going to provide that extra, kind of think of it as a shell of cover to give you the time to get the expertise or to give you the cycles to do that patching on those vulnerable devices. Get there. Sometimes prevention is almost better than cure. So, That's true. Indeed, indeed, but it's still very scary. I know my mother uses a Netgear router at home. I don't want her to te touch technology at all because anytime she does, it explodes and it's my fault for some reason. <laughs> Whether that be a microwave, a garage door opener or a router, it's of course my fault. That's right. But scary, scary. But at least yes. we have a mitigation path for this. That's right. Now, on the topic of being scared, are you an animal lover? 
<laughs> it depends on the animal, Robin, of course. <laughs> How about rats? <laughs> Ooh, not so good. Let's talk about rat fishing, not cat fishing. Let's talk about some remote access Trojans. And I understand yes. something is afoot in the world of the Columbia Cooperative Bank. What's happened? That's right. So some personally identifiable information was stolen from Columbia's Cooperative Bank. Now, at first blush, we might think that the reason behind that stealing could be things like identity theft or impersonation. Mm -hmm. This is uh, this one is a little bit different. The, the threat actor is turning the tables a little bit because what they've done is they've collected all that data in order to create phishing emails. And they use that data to make the phishing emails look even more legitimate because they're going back to their targets with information that the target would presume that only the Columbia, only Columbia's cooperative bank could have. And that phishing email, unfortunately, uh, has a malicious uh, Excel file attached with that information. Again, because it all looks legitimate, it's all, you know, uh, personally identifiable information that the target sees as trusted, they will open that Excel file and then they got you because mm -hmm. this Excel file has a macro embedded in it. The macro downloads a DLL, a dynamic link library. Obviously, this is something that would affect Windows users primarily. Mm -hmm. And that dynamic link library then uses Win HTTP libraries from Windows to pull down a remote access Trojan known as BitRat. And so there you go, Robin. We've turned it from a PII concern to build trust and causing uh, the targets to download malware. To be honest, I think this problem is just about using Excel. Excel has never done anything good for the world of business. Instead, you're just staring, thinking, how, how the heck do I do a counter statement over and over again? So you're saying if we get rid of Excel, this problem goes away. Is, is that well, right? Robin, I'm not going to recommend our users go back to Lotus 123 just yet, but uh, we, we certainly can wrap some controls around Excel and, and be a little bit more careful. But really, for the end user, boy, oh boy, I don't know. This, this is a tricky one. It is. It's kind of breaching on the, the areas of multiple steps of the attack kill chain, if you think of it. But once it again, is. as we say over and over, it comes down to the user. Social engineering and phishing is the most powerful tool because people are inherently trustworthy. Or, or trustworthy? They're, they're wanting to trust people. People want to trust others. And generally, those have good intentions in their hearts. That's right. But how could you avoid being impacted. Say this was an accidental misclick and you thought, oh yes, of course, they know my account number, they know my address, this looks legitimate. How can we prevent from this impacting organizations? Well, let's take a step back first, Robin, because in this particular case with Bitrat, it, it really is, we, we call it a remote access Trojan, but this really packs a punch, this one. So not only can this you know, uh, facilitate remote access, but this will steal data. Uh, this will harvest user credentials off of the systems. It'll even start mining cryptocurrency uh, on, on the user's device. And further to that, the, the Trojan itself can even download more payloads. So 
at first glance, you think, hey, it's a, it's a remote access Trojan, certainly a signature detection engine on something like Bitrad. And, and Bitrad, by the way, Robin, that's available off the shelf for $20 US dollars. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, it's it's pretty much a commodity. It's The problem is all of the other things that Bitrat can do before you catch it. So truly a next-gen anti-malware is going to be critical. You're going to need that as well as uh, IP and URL reputation engines to help uh, help mitigate some of the activity that goes on, whether it's command and control, whether it's trying to exfiltrate data, whether it is mining cryptocurrency and sending it to a particular location. You, you really kind of need, uh, you, you need the bigger package. Simply doing signature-based um, protection is, is not going to be enough. It needs to be next gen. It needs to understand behavior. It needs mm-hmm. to understand reputation. And, and that's really what's going to help mitigate something like this for the end user. Now, again, we're turning the tables, just like, uh, the, the, the threat actor turned the tables, turn PII into something to build trust in order to do phishing attempts. Uh, you know, we, we really need to turn the tables on getting away from signature based and, take it from an end user's perspective, apply it to the enterprise so that we really implement that zero trust framework. And even when something accidental happens, and you asked that earlier, uh, whether malicious or accidental, and typically in phishing, it is accidental, we're still able to mitigate that. So on the topic of zero trust and personal data, I know a CEO that has had almost zero trust in the aptitude and ability of their engineers and once again twitter has been in the news with a little bit of a data leak just a teeny tiny one what's happened robin i have a feeling that all of our viewers knew exactly who you were talking about even before you hit forward on the slide uh yeah here we go again with uh, with twitter we've gotten a second announcement in about two months uh, that another 400 million users data has been taken from Twitter. The reason that we know about that is a nice advertisement went up online that said, we will sell you this 400 million users worth of data for the low cost of 50,000 US dollars. And they even posted a couple samples so that it could be proven legitimate. So here we have a threat actor who scraped a bunch of data out of Twitter through an unknown vulnerability, by the way. We, we still don't have details yet on how they exploited it, but they did get the data. This is the second leak in two months. So mm-hmm. the first leak happened back in November, and that was 487 million users when that was scraped. So, Robin, we're getting pretty close to a billion users served or, or a billion users scraped. <laughs> You're sounding like a Java advert again. A little bit. We're running on a billion <laughs> devices or more. Now, you've used the term threat actor a couple of times there when we talk about the data leakage, but with yes. Twitter's recent attrition rates and the amount of redundancies that happened, there's a very legitimate chance that this could have just been an ex-employee that was disgruntled or somebody that wasn't offboarded correctly with access not fully scraped. So we often think of threat actors being external orbiting parties that try and find some form of thermal exhaust to fire a photon torpedo into. (laughs) But quite often, it could just be somebody inside your organization that leaks the data out. So with Twitter's unique situation at the moment, and with a lot of other companies out there unfortunately going through heavy organizational changes, how can you ensure that this sensitive 
PII data or this really monetary and personally valuable data doesn't get to where it shouldn't be. Robin, I, I love having these conversations with you because you have a knack for bringing out the nuance in, in these situations, which is, I think that's so important. We always talk about external threats. Internal threats are just as dangerous as an external threat. In fact, some could even argue they're more dangerous because they're not black box threats, meaning they're not trying to discover something in the dark. They are already aware. And internal threats, believe it or not, don't have to sit in the office to do that or, or even have access. An internal threat could be somebody that has been, say, uh, relieved of their position, but because they have that that internal knowledge, they still remain an internal threat. And, mm -hmm. and boy, that's a tricky one. So, so how do we unpack how to protect against something like this? And again, we're this is where we turn the tables. That's the theme, right? It's the new year, and we're going to start <laughs> looking at things from from a, a new angle. We we take this instance of of end user data being exfiltrated on a, a social media site and say how. Do we apply this to an enterprise? What does this have to do with an enterprise? And the answer to that is many enterprises carry, you know, personally identifiable information. It could be credit card data, it could be healthcare data, it could be any amount of data. One of the key ways to protect against losing this data is data loss prevention. So being able to identify that your data is moving somewhere that it should not move and stopping that in its track. So we can mitigate the exfiltration of, in the, for this example, um, you know, personally identifiable information. We can stop that from moving with data loss prevention, even if there's attempts made to compress it. But here's the thing, whether internal or external threat actors are smart enough to know that they probably should encrypt the data first before they try to exfiltrate it and, and hope to fool data loss prevention engines. And it's a constant race back and forth, Robin. You know this, threat actors get smart, we get smart, we, you know, it's it's a race back and forth. So what do we do if they're a step ahead and they're able to somehow uh, bypass that data loss prevention engine by doing some real heavy encrypting, uh, obfuscating the traffic? Uh, that's where SASE is really gonna come play, right? SASE is going to, uh, it, it's going to be able to monitor the entire stack. It's going to begin to identify, for example, if anomalous traffic is happening in an intrusion prevention system, should be able to identify that. We should be able to identify with SASE these unknown vulnerabilities during a, a vulnerability management exercise. And 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 by the way, I know I'm I'm talking a lot here, Robin, but there's there's another opportunity to step back here and realize that threat hunting is not the same as vulnerability management. The great thing about SASE or SSE is that it gives you the capability of again providing that protective shell so that you can begin to engage on not only threat hunting activities within the organization, but vulnerability management, identifying those vulnerabilities and figuring out what you need to, uh, you know, do you need to mitigate them? Do you need to transfer the risk, right? We're, we're getting back into GRC once again. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's a lot of pieces to this. So uh, to, to kind of sum it up, you really need a secure web gateway. It really needs to be all of those pieces working in concert with shared context. That is something that we bring to the table. 
all of these things working together with shared context to identify that, you know, boy, this, this threat actor is smart, but we see something behaviorally that doesn't make sense. We need to take a look at this. And that's, that's the way that we can try to mitigate uh, an attack such as this. Shared context is critical. For those listening who might not be aware of what the context are, effectively, every piece of software reports things differently. If you have two network monitoring devices, both monitoring the same traffic feed, you're going to see different sample rates, buckets, averages. Different appliances will use different definitions for the same application. It might be a different port. They might tag things at different points of the overall application flow. And if you just have two appliances, you can kind of work out the discrepancies on your own. But if you have three appliances or four appliances or multiple vendors, things get very chaotic. And as a consultant doing network monitoring in a past life, where I'd go into a customer environment and they would have 40 different types of appliances all running different code, things got crazy. But a single context, a single source of truth, every notification flag, every indicator uses the same defined metrics and life just becomes a lot simpler. So I just wanted to expand on the idea of context there, Bill, because not everybody is really au fait with the idea. Uh, true. Yeah. Mm. And you know, Robin, it, it, it stretches, you know, a lot of what you're describing to me right now may, may twig in other people's minds that, that you know, Robin is saying that you have to have a SIM, uh, you know, a, a information and event manager system, mm. uh, information and event manager. But you know, it, it really does stretch above and beyond that, especially when you do have a truly converged security solution it shares not only information about different events that are happening, but it begins to share behavioral information. And boy, oh boy, is that powerful. Nothing can eliminate the human being, but <laughs> by the same token, the human being is often the largest attack vector. And uh, by pairing those things together with shared context, shared behavior analysis, using machine learning, boy, you really have a powerful solution on your hands to, uh, to, to, to help mitigate some of these threats. Indeed. So we have one more threat that we're going to be discussing today, and we're going to end yeah. on not such a happy note, unfortunately. Uh, but yeah. let's talk about sick kids, hospital, healthcare, and those who have no idea of honor or ethics, even in the world of cyber attacks. What's mm. happened, Bill? Well, there is an old saying uh, concerning honor among thieves, and this is what we see taking place here. So the Lockbit ransomware gang, uh, as they've been called, uh, it's a, a loose consortium of, of individuals that essentially do ransomware for hire. They hit the news recently because there was a ransomware attack on Sick Kids Hospital in Toronto, Canada. So this hospital, as the name would imply, taking care of, of children that are suffering from any number of diseases. Well, they were attacked with a, a ransomware attack. It was pretty clear through the, the TTPs that it was the Lockbit ransomware gang. And Lockbit immediately ceased the attack and provided a decryptor for uh, all of the pieces that had been encrypted up until that moment. Now, let's talk about the scope of it first, and then mm -hmm. we'll talk about why this interesting thing took place. So the scope of it was the ransomware attack began. 
the encryption was targeting uh, VMware virtual machines. So again, don't assume that simply because you're using virtualization, you're, you have an additional layer of protection. You don't. Uh, it, it's just a different vector that a threat actor would use. Uh, but what happened is uh, an affiliate, this is, this is uh, what, what term Lockbit uses, but an affiliate hired them to start that. So essentially what happens is the affiliate gains access, they hire Lockbit to begin the ransomware, the payload is delivered, and it begins encryption. Well, here's the thing. Lockbit, uh, you know, using that honor among thieves said, you know what, we don't attack medical organizations, healthcare organizations. Now that's not entirely true. They are, they have indicated their willingness to attack uh, dentistry or plastic surgeons. But their point was we do not attack organizations where it could lead to a loss of human life. So Lockbit immediately severed the relationship with that affiliate and they provided a decryptor so that, uh, you know, sick kids could begin to decrypt those encrypted VMware virtual machines, those, by the way, carried um, lab results, uh, imaging results. And really the impact on sick kids was that it caused delays in treatment. So, mm -hmm. so far the decryption tool is working successfully. They should be nearly complete, if not complete by now. But boy, oh boy, uh, very interesting that a ransomware gang turns around and says, look, we have a moral stand here and we will not attack. Mm -hmm. uh, so they severed the relationship and gave the tool. It's for Blockbit, it's good business. If you think of it, right. if they're seen as the ethical, <laughs> the ethical <laughs> version of an attack company, then I guess it start attracting more business or more people of like-minded because they know they're giving good customer service. Now, even though the technology is unethical at its heart, what they've mm -hmm. done is a good thing. But then again, it would be better if it didn't exist at all and it wasn't sure. a tool to be used. Do you blame the gun or the shooter? It's a right. kind of a little bit of a difficult perspective. But sure. to know that there's this level of customer service and this level of attention to engagement, Lockbit must have a very good customer success department. <laughs> yeah, think of that one. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's it's. I think it's a very optimistic way to look at it, Robin. And and really, if we boil this down to its essence, what this is, and and again, we're going to turn the tables one last mm -hmm. time. What this is, is a case, and, and we just got done talking about the fact that threat actors could be uh, external just as much as internal. Well, they can be malicious just as much as they can be accidental and here we have an instance where a threat actor was executing a payload without awareness mm -hmm. and boy that that can happen in an enterprise so easily whether it's somebody being targeted by a phishing attack or you may have somebody that enjoys playing with malware and they're experimenting and the horse gets out of the barn so to speak and mm -hmm. and uh, and the attacks start within the organization so that's really what we're looking at this is a threat actor doing something without awareness and sure they had to eat a little bit of crow and and as you said yeah it's probably good for business it's the ethical unethical company right uh, you can rely on them <laughs> the, the most dangerous <laughs> i do a lot of sword fighting and one of the most dangerous things that you can find in the realm of sword fighting is somebody who doesn't know how to use a sword if you go against <laughs> right. an expert they'll know how to control their blade they'll know how to keep their distance and keep their measure 
that's fine. An expert with a sword, you don't have to worry about. It's right. the person who just picks up the piece of metal and starts swinging it around like an idiot. They're the danger to themselves and to others. And the same and to their be, friends. That's right. And the same could be said for technology. True. Uh, going back to my point previously about customer success, I'm thinking the customer success model of land, adopt, expand, and renew, that's very similar to ransomware attacks. You land, you yeah. deploy, you adopt, you assimilate yourself into the environment, you expand using east-west uh, lateral movement, and then you renew, you recycle. Hmm. So, I guess the question for this episode, is customer success a virus? <laughs> wow. really hesitant to answer that oh, one, Robin. Let's, let's turn the tables. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I think that's all about time we have today, Bill. But thank you very yeah. much. It's fun. And as we march forward into a bigger, brighter, bolder, scarier 2023, it's going to be interesting to see what sort of threats, vulnerabilities, and exciting topics we'll have to discuss. So, until next time... Have a great day. Happy New Year, Robin. <laughs>